That takes guts, and uh, we're trying to incorporate our kids uh, more and more, and so uh, we thank Morgan and Julia for also helping with uh, our greeting capacity today. Didn't you feel warmly greeted today? Of course you did, yeah. So anyway, if you're a kid and you'd like to get in on that action, uh, please let us know, and uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. So uh, when it comes to disaster preparedness, getting ready for what might come, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd on that, and I, I think I drive my wife crazy on that. I drive my wife crazy for a lot of reasons, but this is just one of the reasons <laughs> why I do. You know, part of the reason is, um, I don't know, my head's kind of, I was a Boy Scout, and so part of my head is kind of that way, be prepared, and I think about that kind of thing. But also, I'm pretty knee-deep in uh, the COAD, Community Organizations Active in Disaster, and part of their thing is preparedness, so we're talking all the time about how to communicate to Napa County citizens, how to be prepared and be ready because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Something's going to happen. We know that's going to happen. And so, um, you know, I've had different iterations of my preparedness, but really woke up uh, to how important this stuff is, and we're in pretty good shape uh, as far as that goes. And the last one that, that uh, kind of woke me up uh, was uh, we have a gal that sits on our access and functional needs team uh, who uh, is in a motorized uh, wheelchair and has been um, most of her adult life. And she uh, gave a presentation to other folks with access and functional needs on what she needed to do to prepare. And it's like seeing through her eyes, I realized some of the flaws in my design of our preparedness. Because think about it, if, you are in a, if you're in a chair and you gotta get out, if the, if the earth is shaking and you need to get out of the house, all the stuff that you need to survive for the short term needs to be outside of the house, uh, all of it. And so she set up this whole outdoor thing because if the house is unsafe to get into or if you can't open the door because it's all jammed up, you gotta do that. So it just got me to thinking on things and I, I hope that you will do uh, at least the bare minimum uh, to do this. Uh, I say that as the vice chair of the COAD executive committee. <laughs> it would be inappropriate if I did not admonish you thusly. Well, this, uh, this passage that we see in Ephesians uh, really is the same kind of thing. Um, Paul or, or Paul and company uh, who gave us this letter, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, he's saying, hey, Stuff's coming down, and are you ready for that? And are there things you can do to be ready, more ready, uh, for what already is? And so today, we're going to nerd out for a moment on a theological thing, and then we're going to get very practical for how do we live in the world where we know evil exists and stuff happens, and we're, we are marching to the beat of a different drummer, which is going to cause problems uh, for us at times. It's going to be very good for the most part, and it's going to be hopeful, and there's God is with us sort of a stuff, but it doesn't mean we're problem-free. And so that's kind of where we're headed, nerd moment, and then we're going to talk about very practical things that you can do in your life that I think if you pay attention to them like on a daily basis, I think it will make a very significant difference in your life and in your faith and all that. But the first thing we've got to look at, and I'm just going to repeat these verses because they may sound... Uh, foreign to you to a degree, particularly if you did not grow up in the church. And some of these phrases and words may cause you some anxiety because you're not quite sure how you feel about the words that you're seeing in Ephesians chapter 6. 
But it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So on one level, there's widespread agreement about what Paul is saying here. That we know in the world, evil happens. We all agree on that, that there are evil things that happen in the world. And a lot of the times, the evil that we see in the world, we can see out there in other people. And I think we can all agree on that. Uh, we can think about the horrific atrocities of history and say, oh, yeah, that was evil. Sometimes those evil atrocities were even carried out by people who were claiming to be Christian. But it doesn't make it less evil, right? So that, that's sort of the baseline, that we know that there is evil in the world. And if we're honest about it, we're not just seeing evil in other people sitting across the table or people groups far away that don't necessarily look like us or use our language or whatever. But if we're really honest about it, we know that we at times in our lives have also tripped into the evil category. Now, maybe we haven't been this sinister mastermind or what have you, but we know we've slipped into the category of not loving, not kind, maybe hurtful, maybe abusive, etc., etc., etc. So we can agree that there is evil in the world. But the question that this raises for us is how do we understand that evil and where it comes from? And so because these words are charged and they're loaded in our time, I just want to address them in a nerdy way for just a few minutes. But what do we do with devil? What do we do with demons and all this stuff? How do, we, how do we get our brains around this in our present age? And so first I want to say that Crosswalk is a place where we welcome uh, these kinds of questions and we welcome thought and we welcome processing stuff and wondering about things that it is not illegal here uh, to not want to ask the question lest we tick somebody off or tick God off or whatever. So this is a place where we do that. And we're, we're, we're happy to use our brains. We're, we're welcoming of what's called higher criticism. I talk about that in my blog today a little bit if you want to check out what that means. Meaning we want to learn as much as we can about a thing given all the information that we can possibly gather so that we can understand the thing better. Does that make sense? And that's a big deal. Because there are some uh, faith communities that that's not really allowed. That if it's written in the text, if it says devil, then the devil's it. And if it talks about these supernatural forces and, you know, all this stuff, then that must be just the way it is, and that settles it. But what I want to suggest to you is, first of all, to give you, to give you the opportunity to have freedom to think and freedom to wonder that while we can all agree on evil exists in the world, that how we express that and how, it, how we understand it, we may have some disagreement with what we see in the Scripture. And <laughs> the Scripture itself disagrees with other parts of Scripture on this. Because from the origins of the Bible until the end of the book of Revelation, a lot of time passed. A lot of things shaped the thinking of ancient Israel so that they saw the world differently as time passed. This is super, super clear. 
It's clear in the way they thought about the law. So if you go in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law books of the Bible, you see in one earlier text where the voice of God, the word of God says, this is the law. God speaks. Final authority. But then a couple books later, still books of the law, but written at a later time, you see God speaking, this is the law, and it's different than the previous law. What does that mean? It means that over time, uh, these biblical writers, the people of God, understood things differently, and they danced with God and the flow of the Spirit to figure things out. That is also true with the subject of evil and the person that is, you know, um, personalized or personified through evil, which is called devil, Satan, Lucifer, all these categories, this hierarchy. Now, you and I would say today that uh, this Satan figure, this devil person, whatever, would never be allowed access to God, that God and God's holiness, holy of holies, would never allow such a being in God's presence. And yet, in the oldest book of the Bible, which is the book of Job, uh, you see exactly that, where this character comes uh, to make a deal with God, is welcomed into the company of God, and says to God, you know, I think your people are only praising you because they've got it going good. You make them suffer a little bit, and that's going to change things. And so they make this deal, and the whole book of Job is, is basically a wager, <laughs> organized, designed by the Satan figure, and God agrees to it to bring terrible suffering on Job and his family. Now, the whole thing is in the poetry section of the Bible, so we're not to read this as historical fact, but more as allegory, metaphor, it's a story, uh, and it's all done in prose, and there's much there for us to learn. In other parts of the scripture, you see this character uh, looked at in very different ways, depending on the time in history. What I'm simply saying is there's not one way to define this character of Satan, devil, Lucifer in the Bible. There are multiple, and they speak in incongruent ways with each other, which this may be troubling for you if you grew up in a tradition that said, nope, it's just this. What I'm saying to you is you heard of just this, but what I want to suggest to you is perhaps, perhaps in that teaching, in that lesson, you were not exposed to other ways of seeing it or other verses or or a light was not shown on how these things do not necessarily work together. Because they don't. By the time you get to the New Testament, a lot changes between the last iteration of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. And about 300 years passed. And in that time, the Roman Empire has been in, uh, in control, not all those 300 years, but uh, the people of Israel have not been their own. They've not owned their own country. Uh, they've been largely in exile and definitely not in control of their power anymore. And a lot of other influences have entered into their thoughts. Uh, by the time Jesus hits the, the scene, it's just more so. By the time Jesus is gone and the early church has begun, uh, especially by the time Ephesians is written, the church is increasingly Gentile, non-Jewish. And Paul specifically, who's credited with the authorship of this letter, uh, he is um, mostly in non-Jewish circles, okay? Because the Jewish people don't want to listen to what he has to say. 
He's the prophet to the Gentiles with all of his expertise knowledge of Judaism. It's interesting. So what that means is, is that when, when the table, uh, when people come around the table for theological discussion, most of the people who are coming to the table are not coming from a Jewish perspective, but they're coming from a non-Jewish perspective. And their primary information of their worldview, their cosmology, their theology, is not from the Jewish monotheistic way of thinking, but from the mythology of Romans and Greeks. And all of that overlays how they think and how they speak. And so when you see Paul talking about all of this stuff, it sounds more like Greek and Roman mythology because that was the language of the people. And it begs a question. Paul, as this great rhetorician, I think that's a word, <laughs> this great speaker <laughs> who knows how to use rhetoric well, that's safer, <laughs> uh, is he using language that clearly communicates to people? Words that they understand, concepts, cosmology that they understand. Is he doing that because then he knows they'll get it? Or does Paul actually believe what he's writing? Or is it both? And the answer to the question is, we're not sure. I think probably Paul believed in something like this, which would have been a very, very non-Jewish. Uh, because it, it just really rides that edge, which kind of pushes monotheism uh, off the end of the cliff. Because really, you're talking about, even though we may cloak it in fallen angels and all this stuff, um, it sure smells like you've got multiple deities at war with each other. Now, you may have smelled the tar warming up as you came in today. That's for me. <laughs> and there will be buckets of feathers to throw on me, perhaps. Um, but what I'm saying with this is that it's okay to think, it's okay to wonder how the Bible progressed. And because I do not believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible, because I don't think the writers of the Bible thought that either, especially Jesus, and because the rabbinical tradition is, how are we going to bring everything we know and are exposed to to bear on our understanding of Scripture? That means that the last 2,000 years of understanding needs to come to bear on how we think the world and the cosmology works. Because we don't agree with everything that is written in the Bible. You do not, most of you I think, do not agree with everything that is written in the Bible. And one of the great cases and points has to do with how we understand how the universe works. Most of you, I'm pretty sure, uh, believe, uh, and if you have issue with any of this, you know, this isn't the debate forum. Take it up with me later. I'd be happy. I love Theo babbling about this stuff, so happy to do that, but not here. But one of the things that I'm pretty confident you all agree with is that the earth is round. You're pretty sure about that. There may be some flat earthers. No worries. Uh, this is a safe place. Uh, you're welcome to believe that if you like. But we, for the most part, we believe that the earth is round. And we believe that the earth revolves around the sun. And every year it takes another lap. We're pretty confident of that. We're pretty confident that even though we call it sunrise and sunset, what, what we really mean is, is that the earth is turning. And so we're seeing the sun differently. But that way of thinking um, was foreign to every writer of the Bible. There may be a hint or two here that might suggest otherwise, but not really. Uh, if Genesis itself was finally put to paper 
about eight centuries before Jesus was born, and this was the prevailing thought before that, then all of the creation stories suggest a very different cosmology. If you were to say to the ancient world, hey, newsflash, we're a round sphere hurling through space, and we're taking laps around the sun every year, and the sun's not really rising, the, the world is turning, you'd be laughed out of the room. Because nobody believed that for a very, very long time. So we're comfortable with being heretical about some things in the Bible, and that there, yet there are certain hot potatoes, third rails, that we feel like we can't even question. And so when I bring up the veracity of Satan, the devil, this whole underworld thing, and I know the mythology that's in there, so I'm not, I'm not a dummy on this stuff, it feels like we've gone too far. And all I'm suggesting is, we all agree that there's evil in the world. What I'm suggesting is that does not necessarily require an underworld dark hierarchy with a Satan figure on top. That's all I'm saying. And because of what we understand with modern psychology and life, we know that there are certain things, certain behaviors that are exhibited among people who are struggling with certain forms of mental illness or other biological things that when you see them in their phase, whatever that is, they look demonic. What we would say, that person is demon-possessed. They are not themselves. They are something else, but they are not who we are used to seeing. And if we had no other way of thinking about it, no other whatever to bring into the equation of our thought, we would surely think there is a demon possessing this person. Sometimes people who struggle with certain things even foam at the mouth. They could act completely out of character, violent. So that's to the extreme. Uh, we know that physical things cause people to do things in strange ways that we can't understand. And we know that even people who are fairly uh, healthy, who are raised in healthy environments, like I was raised in a very, really a very healthy family environment. And yet I know that I still have my demons. So we use this vernacular, this rhetoric, to talk about the things that we know kind of haunt us and motivate some of our behavior. But because I say I still have my demons does not mean that I believe that I have literal demons that are poking me, you know, at certain times. I think most of the time it means that I have unprocessed pain that I haven't really worked through, that there are unresolved things in my life, places of unhealing that need to be addressed. And when they are addressed, I'm less likely to be demonized by them. Does that make sense? So we all agree that evil happens in the world. We can be comfortable with that, but I'm giving you permission to wonder what are the things that make this up? And, by the way, you know, when it comes to evil and the ways that I've described with, uh, on a very personal level with psychological issues or physiological issues, if we think on terms of mass stuff where groupthink takes over, and now you've got a mass of people coming together to do things and say things that they would never come to on their own, but the whole group is with it. This is a real phenomenon. Well, if you're just looking at that from the distance and you have no idea what you're looking at, it's going to look like there's something else that's fanning the flames here. But it doesn't have to be an underworld, dark, hierarchical system with a Satan on top. So I'm just giving you a pass. And the reason I'm doing this is, one, to celebrate and affirm that 
ongoing study is important, to recognize that the Bible itself was written in process over time and it reflects all of that, and also because there are too many places where you're not allowed to even talk about it, and that creates an environment for some people that they've been led to believe that if they even question some of these classical positions, that they're not a true believer, they're not welcome, and so a growing number of people with that kind of a rhetoric and that kind of a schema that they have to agree to and sign off on are just saying, well, forget it. And they're never exposed to the fullness of the good news of Jesus because they feel like they have to agree with that in order to hear the good news. And what I'm telling you is, that's not true. That's not true. There's good news here in the face of evil. You decide for yourself how you understand this reality that evil exists in the world. Now let's turn to what Paul says will be helpful to us in a world where evil exists. You with me so far? All right, nobody's running away yet? Okay, yep. <laughs> so then Paul gets very practical. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Now, you cannot go today to Kohl's and buy the belt of truth. It's not that kind of a belt. So we're talking metaphor here, which means we need to understand what is Paul getting at. Well, if you're in ancient times, um, a belt, you know, they did, guys didn't wear pants yet, I don't think. Uh, that came later. They wore kind of roby kind of things, and a belt uh, would sort of keep things together in different places. They might have a loincloth or something. I don't know. I, did, I didn't look. <laughs> I didn't ask. <laughs> but they did wear belts, and the belt served a purpose, not only to keep stuff down where it needed to go to hold stuff up that needed to be held up, but they also hooked stuff on it. So you're, <laughs> you know, you'd hang your sword on that, maybe, maybe your canteen or whatever. whatever. Your, your belt is purposeful. It, it's, it provided your foundation for everything else. And I think putting on the belt of truth is a helpful thing to start with every single morning. Recognize that we live in a world of competing truths. Different voices saying, this is true, this is true, this is true. But as the people of God who are following Jesus, we are saying that what we understand to be true, that Jesus has said, this is the truth that we are choosing to go forward with. In a world of competing truths, we're choosing the truth that we see expressed in Jesus. Starting with that alone helps shape our decisions going forward. One of the great competing forces in our nation in our time has to do with uh, everything about ourselves, everything about power, personal power, personal titles, wealth, consumption, the truth of our economy is we need more people buying more stuff to keep the economy afloat. So he who has the most toys wins, you know, in our world. He who has the most power is the one who is the, you know, the holder of the truth. But that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is different than that. It's evidenced in the, the, the depths of shalom that we see. It's about peace. It's about love. It's about grace. It's about good news. And it's different than many of the ways that are expressed in the world. So we start with the belt of truth. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate is going to go around your chest, right? And it's going to 
It's going to cover your torso to protect you some. This righteousness thing has to do with the right way of living or living in the right way. Caveat, he's not saying put on the breastplate of self-righteousness. Very big difference. Self-righteousness is puffed up and lets Lauren know all the ways he's not being righteous. Righteousness is saying, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I'm not just believing this stuff. I'm walking in the ethic as best as I know how. This is important because all of us, in one way or another, struggle uh, on the ethical front. We're all good. We can sing the songs on Sunday, but as soon as we're headed out to the parking lot, all bets are off sometimes. And we all trip into it in our favorite ways. There are some things in your life that you are doing exceptionally well in true Jesus form. And I think you can celebrate those. And yet at the same time, every one of you struggles because there are some things in your life that maybe don't quite fall in line with the ethic of Jesus. To differing levels of severity, to different levels of implications for your personal pain and the pain that you consequently uh, inflict on others. You know what I'm saying? There are things that we do which are completely not healthy, that are not shalom. There are things that we do with substance abuse that we do to our own bodies, which is not going to help our bodies be whole. There are things we don't want to address in our lives because they're too painful. That is against shalom, which is constantly saying, uh, the voice of God, I want to make you well, I want to make you whole, I want to make you well, I want to make you whole. These kind of behavioral choices, the ethic of Jesus matters. It's not just about signing off on some belief statement, it's actually putting your feet in place. Which, since we get to the putting our feet in place, we need to get to the next thing that he says, which says, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Very interesting that Paul reminds us here to put on shoes that communicate that we come in peace. Not probably military boots. Military boots say to the person that you are approaching, I'm here to do some serious battle with you, and I intend to win. Now, sometimes the military boots, we got two strange things happening right now at the same time. Uh, in our world today with our military. On the one hand, we have our, our military helping uh, get out of Afghanistan, which is one big hot mess. After 20 years of a big hot mess, of battle and war and awful things, uh, and military boots involved. And yet at the same time right now in Haiti, <laughs> members of our military are wearing military boots doing grade eight uh, to people who really need it. But I think you get my drift. If our message is peace, our wardrobe ought to look like it. So maybe instead of thinking to ourselves, we're going to go kick some butt today, maybe it's wear those fuzzy slippers that you only wear at home. Because nobody's going to take you as a warrior <laughs> if you're wearing fuzzy slippers. Or maybe for you, it's Vans. Or maybe for you, it's Canvas All-Stars. Or maybe for you, the ultimate peace sign of Birkenstock. <laughs> because you've seen the pictures, Jesus wore Birkenstocks. We know this. It's in the ancient text. <laughs> I think you get the point. 
So we have this belt of truth. We are choosing to live in our brains, our orientation, and the way of God by the Spirit of God. That's actually going to translate into what we do with our feet and our lives, and it's going to translate to how we carry ourselves in the world as people of shalom. This is the way of God. God is about shalom, and God pursues shalom with shalom. It's a full package, and that's what we're supposed to be. With all these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith we're talking about here in the ancient world is not a Captain America, you know, shield about two feet wide in a circle made out of whatever metal that was. Anybody remember the name of that metal? What is it? Vibramian? Sounds good. All right. So <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about almost a body length shield made out of wood and wrapped in leather. And the reason you wanted this shield, like a full body one, is because one of the tactics, tactics of war back in the day was that as you were going to attack or you were being attacked, uh, the opponent was casting arrows in your direction, shooting arrows in your direction, and often with flame attached. And you knew if that thing hit you, that was not going to be good. And so you had this body length shield to protect you from those flames. But it's interesting here that Paul chooses to say, take on the shield of faith to protect you from this kind of attack. It's like Paul is saying to us, if you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, you got the belt on, you got the breastplate on, you're wearing your fuzzy slippers, you can still expect, expect attack. It's just the way it works. Sometimes it's going to go beautifully and things are going to go great and it's going to be kumbaya at the end of the day. But because following in the footsteps of Jesus also means that you speak truth to power, that you see some things that are so incongruent with shalom that you have to say something, that means there's going to be backlash on the part of the people who are doing those things. And because they aren't necessarily wearing the same belt as you, they don't care if they attack you because they don't necessarily care about shalom. So, people of faith, if sometimes you take a hit because of your faith, guess what? You're in good company. This happened to Paul. It happened to Jesus. Most of the disciples of Jesus were martyred. Take note. It doesn't always go great, even if it is true and right. He goes on to take the helmet of salvation. Where do you put a helmet? On your head. Right. I wonder if this is uh, another thing for us to chew on. We're doing a little bit of Jewish midrash here, by the way. This is all conjecture. But I wonder if the reason this metaphor of a helmet of salvation is important is because we need to get it through our head. That we're okay. That the message of Jesus is salvation is here now for you. It's for everybody. And another part of uh, this same uh, passage and other writings of Paul, he says that through Jesus Christ, everything, everything, has been reconciled to God through Christ. Everything. Done. Whether or not you see that as substitutionary atonement on the cross, great, fantastic, because that's what it's communicating, or the good news that Jesus talked about and preached and carried out in his earthly ministry, they're all saying to you in big, bold letters, salvation is here, now it's for you. Own it. There's no more needing to try to win favor with God. You already have it. So what this means is if you've struggled all of your life with legitimate self-esteem issues because there are forces going on in the world, you have a choice. 
You have a choice of which voice you want to listen to most. And it's difficult, but the helmet of salvation says to you, you are deeply loved as my child. No ifs, ands, or buts. No matter what your wardrobe is, your zip code is, your bank account is, all of that, I love you, period. What a difference it can make in our lives. If we start owning that, listening to that, and letting it do its thing in our lives. It's hard work, isn't it? It's not like we just make the decision today and it's all done. It's a process. But what a helmet to wear. That at your core, you are deeply loved by God. You're created in the image of God. And so own it, believe it, as your helmet implies. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord. I had a friend in college named Adolphus Lacey. And Adolphus, uh, anytime he'd come to any kind of a student Christian thing, uh, he'd always ask me, you got your sword? Got your sword? <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> He's like, your Bible, man, your sword, the sword of the Lord, you know? Your Bible, because it says that's what, the, that's what the word of the Lord is. It's your, it's your sword of the Spirit. And so a lot of people really owned that. Like, because it says the word of God, and because the church calls the Bible the word of God, then surely we're talking about the Bible. And so many people uh, chucked their free Gideon New Testament because it was only this big, right? And you can't do much harm with that. So they went out and invested in a really thick, fat life application study Bible because you could do some damage with that thing, man. You can beat that over people's head and they will remember it, right? And so we, we weaponized this a little bit. And probably manly men everywhere uh, saw the idea that we could have a sword. And we got super excited about that, thinking, all right, it's time to do some business. But that's not the word we're talking about. The word of God, if we really want a better picture of what Paul's probably talking about, you see a much better picture of that in the very beginning of the Gospel of John. Where in the beginning, there was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word came into this world and found a home and incarnated in this one called Jesus. But the word has no flesh. If there's another word you want to think about, it's the spirit of God. That's a good, that's a good uh, metaphor. It's a good, it's a good synonym, synonym for what we're, could be synonym too, but I think it's synonym <laughs> for what we're talking about in the word. Which means that the sword that we carry isn't even really about us or us beating anything. It's just the opposite. It's when we're in that moment, we are recognizing, okay, if I'm left to my own devices, I am really going to screw this up because that person is going to poke my buttons left and right, and I'm going to, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. It's going to get worse. Anybody ever been there with me before? Absolutely. But to employ the sword of the Spirit is to say, God, I need you to do the talking here. I need to back off. I need to calm down. And I need to listen for the voice of the Spirit. Because the voice of the Spirit in this very tense situation is going to be about shalom. With shalom. The voice of the Spirit is not interested in winning the argument or the attack. The voice of the Spirit of God, being the voice of the Spirit of God, is about shalom. How do we bring peace here? How do we bring understanding? How do we bring reconciliation? How do we make sure that everybody's being heard? That's a very different approach than our day-to-day. 
particularly in what is modeled for us on social media, in our political environment, where it's all about taking shots. The spirit of the Lord, the sword that we are to use, isn't even one that's directed by us. We are the vessels, we're to be used, but it is the spirit of, of God that moves this thing in the right direction. Because left to our own devices, we probably will screw it up. And of course, this all leads to what? He has all these different ideas, but he says three times in a row, pray, pray, and pray. <laughs> pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Paul is an ambassador in chains. This is not the picture of a victorious gladiator in Rome. This is a guy who may, in fact, by the time this letter reached Ephesus, was already dead. Many scholars believe that while this reflects a lot of Pauline thought, that there are enough phrases and language that are used within the letter that were not Paul's original vernacular, uh, that it is very likely that his disciples, his followers, put the final touches on the letter that went out, which means that Paul, who did it the right way, who at times asked people to pray for him, and it meant the release from captivity, this time it didn't happen that way. What do we do with that? Do we abandon the whole armor of God because Paul died in chains because of what he believed to be true? No. What it means is that Paul believed in this Jesus message enough that he devoted his entire life to it because it was worth living. He devoted his entire life to it because not only was it worth living for, but it was worth suffering for. And he believed in the truth of Jesus and what Jesus came to communicate that is not only worth living for and suffering for, it was worth even dying for. To you and me, this is this is like a call to say, pay attention to this great news that we have in Jesus because it is the source of your life. And even if it means your death, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Because the Spirit of God, <laughs> at the end of the day, is all there is. Jesus used metaphors for God, one of great intimacy, uh, not just father, but daddy. That's what Abba means. But to a woman at a well who saw things differently, her cosmology was different, he admitted to her, you know what? At the end of the day, God is spirit. And those who worship God worship with spirit and in truth. At the end of the day, spirit is what there is. At the end of the day, spirit is all there is. Spirit is the source of life. And as we choose to follow it, even if it means our suffering and death, we lived from the source, and we are going to that same source. Paul found home in this source of the Spirit of God, just as Jesus did. You are invited today to make the same decision, to wonder how will you choose to wear uh, this whole armor of God so that you may withstand life and the evils of life and after you do, you are still standing. Let's pray together.
So God, if anybody knows that there's evil in the world more than us, it's got to be you. You wouldn't need to be known as a God of Shalom if there wasn't a big mess that needed Shalom. So God, we agree uh, that we live in a world where there is beauty, there is loveliness, there are things to be celebrated, and that there is strife that is caused by evil. We admit that that is true. And we admit that at times we've been a part of it. Sometimes unwittingly, sometimes very consciously. So we choose today to reject evil in our world, evil in ourselves, that we don't want that. We want to live life rooted in life. We choose today uh, to say that we want to follow the truth that we recognize by your spirit working in Jesus. That's the belt that we choose. We choose today uh, to put on the breastplate, the ethic which protects us in so many ways. We choose today to monitor what we're wearing for shoes and are choosing the way of peace. We're choosing today to, to guard ourselves with a shield of faith, meaning we're probably going to be attacked at some point. But we're believing and we're hoping that we're going to make it through. We're choosing to put on a helmet of salvation that reminds us all the time that we're loved, we're loved, we're loved, we're loved, we're loved, just as we are. And finally, God, we choose to give you the freedom to use us all of us, as you wield the sword of the Spirit, may we truly be a people who are known as people who pursue shalom, deep peace, and that we do it with shalom. May it be so for us today. To that end, God, we choose to pray the prayer that you taught us to pray, which is itself an iteration of what the whole armor of God means. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive to forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.